0: So let's dive into material world because it's a great read and maybe we can start with what sparked the idea and when you started executing on it, because there Mm. are, of course, authors who are well known for writing about materials and energy transition, maybe some professors are most noticeable. Um, So I think you kind of find a unique angle. And I think that's also necessary in order to embark on writing a book because it's a long journey, as you said, right? So
1: yeah, totally. And I mean, I like I I would never go into any of these fields pretending that I'm an expert in them because I'm not. You know, I'm I'm just I'm a journalist. I'm a hack. <laughs> I'm 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 maybe maybe most flatteringly, I'm a storyteller and a communicator. Um and. So that where this started, and yeah, we can talk about. There are some fantastic, amazing minds in the world of material science, but also kind of looking at energy, who 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 I cite a lot of in in, in the book. But for me, as 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 a kind of norm, normal person, I was struck when I I went to a mine. Um, it was a gold mine uh, a few years ago in Nevada. And I actually was going for a totally different reason. I was going to cover some story about statistics. So it was I was looking for something to illustrate um, what happens with the flows of gold around the world. And I found myself standing on the, the edge of this open pit uh mine in Nevada and just being completely bowled away by the scale of it. It just it just it completely took my breath away. And I thought I thought, wow, if that's what we do to get something like gold, which actually, you know, the vast majority of use of gold is what you'd probably call discretionary. You know, we put it away, it becomes a monetary resource. So it goes in banks vaults. Um, It becomes jewelry that goes, you know, on the the necks of people or the ring fingers and so on. Um, But it's not like civilization would necessarily break down without it, you know, there's doesn't, we don't have to have a lot of the gold that we have. Um, although there are some uses. And so I kind of thought to myself, gosh, if that's what we do to get gold, what do we do to get the stuff that we actually really need? And then I thought, well, okay, what is the stuff we really need? So we could probably survive without gold, or, you know, for most of the most of uh, the uses of gold, um, but what are the things that we really need? And so that then just kind of led me down a road of thinking, okay, well, probably it's this, it's steel maybe, it's copper probably. And then I... I, I, so I kind of went through the processes of thinking about what we actually needed to, to to make the world that we all kind of depend on, and there was no. The funny thing was, you know, a few other people have kind of looked at this, but it's not like there is a list anywhere. You know, these are the most important things out there. There's no, and there's no way of. This is part of part of what I, why I think it's kind of intriguing. If you look at GDP, if you look at the breakdown of gross domestic product, it's not like that has any relation to the stuff that we need to survive as a civilization. you know the vast majority of GDP, the vast majority of, of 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 market capitalization in 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 many stock markets around the world are companies that probably dare I say we could kind of survive without you know like I think we could survive without a lot of social media. you know it's an important part of the communication process, but it's not like humanity would cease to exist. Maybe we'd be, you know, slightly more better adjusted without it, dare I say. And the same, you know, you could say the same thing about a lot of a lot of services, not to to do them down. I mean, I work in a services industry. This is this is the services industry that we are that we're partaking in here. And it, I think it is important. But I just wanted to focus on something else. I wanted to focus on what are the, what are the foundations for, for the world that we we live in? Um, so initially, for me, this was a, a book. That was actually just trying to answer that question. It wasn't really supposed to be about the energy transition and material. You know, the the our our pursuit of materials. I kind of just wanted to know where does stuff come from. You know, where does it begin in the ground? When when I look at my smartphone, where does the silicon in that smart in that in the chip come from? And the weird thing was that I found I spoke to a lot of people about this kind of thing. And it's 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 weirdly difficult to get answers to these things, partly because people don't really spend all that much time thinking about where the supply chain that they're part of actually begins. You know, I, I don't think, as, as a book, someone who's written books, I don't spend much time thinking about where the paper comes from. But when you go down that route, it becomes actually fascinating, and you start to realise just what complexity this world actually consists of. Um, and so the book began as trying to kind of think about those things, going to, to the fundamental beginning of all of the, the different parts of our world, it's not in any way exhaustive, of course. And so I, I I had to choose a certain number of materials. In fact, I originally started with seven, but it was just becoming too big and unwieldy. So I've got six in the end, and they are sand, salt, um, iron, copper, oil, um, and lithium. And the idea is that between those six materials, you can tell a lot of the, you know, some of the story, at least a lot of the important story of the human human progress, essentially, um, of the, the energy transitions we've been through, of um, how we've all got kind of better off, uh, of how we've been able to feed ourselves, of how uh, technology has developed and how we have made the world dirtier and made, made the world cleaner. And it it turns out that looking through those prisms you know it's it is definitely not the only way to look at the world but it is a fascinating way to look at the world because you kind of you you start to get more of an understanding of how it fits together in a way that conventional economics and a lot of the stuff that we talk about every day doesn't really kind of answer any of those any of those questions so um yeah it was a bit of a journey for me and it ended up with yeah with this book that I guess like I've been, I've been waiting, it has been a while since my last book and I've been waiting for the right, the right idea about which to write a book. A lot of people, a lot of journalists, and there's nothing wrong with this at all, kind of take what they're doing on a day-to-day basis and turn that into, you know, a book. So you can kind of, if if you're really, if you're really kind of uh, clever, you can look at a lot of these books and you can see that that's, that's a patchwork of, of of something that someone has been covering over the course of years that then turned into an elegant book. And that's that's a great way of doing things. And it's very efficient. This was really inefficient because I was looking at stuff that I had never covered before in my life. Uh, I had no idea. You know, I'm, I'm not a physicist. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a material scientist. Um, I'm not an environmental, you know, economist either. So for this, I was having to learn myself as I went along and use, I guess the linkers use some of the, skills I started off with in my career, taking stuff I have no idea about and trying to understand it and then relate that to other people, um, but doing it for this material world that we inhabit. And it's been the most interesting thing I've ever, I've ever researched or written about by far. It's so, it's totally, totally fascinating. And yeah, my only hope is that that comes across in the book and that people, the more people who might not have thought to look at this stuff Suddenly realize, hang on, this this actually this is really interesting.
0: So you introduced the uh, the six materials. Can we just if I ask the question, what's the most undervalued or underrated? Which one would you
1: pick out that
0: maybe you know the normal person in the street wouldn't be aware of?
1: Well, probably. I mean, so maybe salt. Like so, so copper. I feel like copper is always underrated because you never you don't see much copper even though it's always there i'm in i'm in like a kind of recording studio at the moment and pretty much everywhere i look has, it will have every de- device i look at will have copper in it and you know including this computer that we're talking on but you don't see it and so are people are people i don't think think about it that much um and also copper's great because it's like the first thing we ever mined uh, in great quantities and it's also now the key to, to to electrification in the future the key to to net zero um but I think salt, salt, I love because even people who think they know about this stuff don't pay pay much attention to salt. Salt is, you know, for a lot of people, it's just a condiment. Um, it's kind of might be interesting historically, and there's some great history stories about salt because the story, the history of salt, tells you a lot about about humanity. You know, salt used to be very, very expensive to to to, to make, to evaporate away, and uh, and to to, to to refine, and as a result, salt was often used as a kind of as a tool of power. It was used as a currency. It was used as a form of money. Um, it was given as a ration to to Roman soldiers. That's where the word salary comes from. They were given salt uh, as part of their as part of their kind of remuneration. Um, And it was also something that was one of the first things to be taxed, so so governments would tax and monopolize salt supply uh, in order to wield power. It was all about power, salt and power. But yeah, what what is so fascinating about it today is that the majority of salt that we get out of the ground even now, it's not used for for going on your kitchen table or indeed for for going on the the roads to to de-ice the roads. It's used in chemicals. Um, We get, I think, more than half of the salt that we produce, for instance, in this country. And we still, people don't realize that we still mine a lot of salt in the UK. A lot of, the vast majority of that goes into the chemicals supply chain. And it gets turned into things like chlorine. So without salt, we don't have drinking water. Uh, And I went to one of the most fascinating places I went to is where we turn salty water coming out of the ground into chlorine which then purifies the drinking water for 98% of the country the guy there said if this place goes down then within 7 days we are rationing drinking water and it comes from salt um and so and there's you know for instance there's there's chemicals like soda ash and caustic soda which again people within the trade have obviously heard of that the building blocks of a lot of chemistry. Uh, but outside, most people don't don't spend any much time thinking about that maybe they think about baking soda. But without soda ash, you know, you don't have glass, you don't have a load of chemicals that we need today. Without caustic soda. It's just hard to know where to begin, you know, you don't have paper without caustic soda because caustic soda is used to to turn kind of, you know, the wood into a kind of pulpy thing that you can then uh, make into paper. Um these these are like the foundations of the world we live in. You can't clean anything. You know, you don't have bleach without salt, because that's where it comes from. Um and without bleach and without cleaning products, millions of people around the world would would have died. We just, you know, like that is part of the, the the story of progress over the last century, is also making the world cleaner. And part of the way that we've made the world cleaner is by, you know, having these widespread chemical products which we can use to as detergents to to clean the world all of which comes from this this I think really underrated substance that and I think this is the nicest thing we all have salt in our lives we all have it in our lives it's there in plain sight but you don't spend much time thinking about it because it's just there and that's what I wanted to do with each of these substances is to is to I mean, maybe you don't see much lithium, but you see a lot of steel, you see salt, you see sand when you go to the beach all the time, um, you see iron, you see copper. I wanted, I wanted to kind of underline that there is there is wonder in these substances, and they, they have a far deeper history, and that, you know, you can actually touch them. You can go and touch these things and then think to yourself, gosh, if it weren't for this substance I'm holding or I'm sprinkling over my chips, uh, then we the world would be a very different place and we wouldn't have half of the even the high tech stuff you know even your silicon chip couldn't be made without salt because you need chemicals hydrochloric acid really uh, that come from salts uh, to as part of the refining process to take rock and turn it into into pure silicon uh, that goes into your smartphone and the same thing with lithium so with lithium the way that we make lithium particularly the stuff that comes out of chile um the way they make that lithium, they, 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 it comes out of the ground as a kind of brine and it gets precipitated away over, over a long period. The way they're doing that is basically the same as the way the ancient Phoenicians thousands of years ago used to make salt. So the way we, the lithium that goes in your smartphone battery there's a good chance that that was produced in the same way that ancient people, many thousands of years ago, used to make their salt, and I find that quite profound and quite exciting. And so that was just like well, this is just a one tiny bit of the the many stories I came across, which I guess is why it felt why it wasn't such a drag to write this book because it's like there's just so much stuff in there, and I had to, I had to cut loads of stuff because it there was you know it was getting a bit too long um but it's all it's all exciting exciting material i think
0: that's a great answer if we just uh, have the concept of the material world in general who do you think are the most interesting people or companies to really try to understand of course, if we're talking about oil and gas, you end up maybe in Middle East, of course, but because like you said, it's a bit overlooked because people don't really think about it that much. And of course, mm. it's also, do you have abundance on some materials, maybe you have scarcity somewhere, but it's so complex and supply chain. So is it politicians who are the most important people here or is it companies, people? How do you mm. view that
1: landscape? What I found most interesting about kind of going into this world is that the vast majority of the the... The companies I was encountering were not household names, so you 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 know you think everyone's heard of tesla they 've heard of you know walmart they've heard of apple but not, none of those companies really fully inhabit the material world, and what I mean by the material world is people who take stuff out of the ground and transform it into the physical products that we rely on you know every day and it doesn't have to just be literally the physical devices you've got but it could be you know the fiber optic cables that are that are allowing us to talk right now people forget that this is an entirely material uh, mode of communication when they are communicating online um it is everything is going through a fiber optic cable um so the what i kind of encountered is there are just this this enormous constellation of companies that i had never heard of who actually are doing the stuff that enable the household names to to provide their products. You know, Apple is a great example because they don't make a single thing. You know, they design extraordinary devices, Um, but most of the, well, all of their devices are are made by other people. And all of the components going into those devices are made by other people. And they just put the Apple name on at the end. It's a form of contract manufacturing, outsourcing. Uh, And it's been that way for a long time uh, for, for Apple. They don't make the chips. And in fact, you know, even TSMC, who make who make the chips that go into the you know the Apple devices, um, even they are not making the machines that make the chips, and even the mach- the people who are making the machines. So, like take ASML. So, you've got the silicon chip, which is. the 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 incredible transistor density is thanks in part to something called photolithography this process of bouncing light this extreme ultraviolet light which doesn't exist in the you know in the real world we inhabit it's a total totally sci-fi thing they do and we could kind of go down a long rabbit hole on that but those those machines which are imprinting the incredibly small like nanometer dimension transistors onto the chips they're not made by csmc they're just operated by tsmc they're made by another company called asml now you know more people have heard of tsmc these days than had than previously and actually more people have heard of asml than had done previously partly because we had this semiconductor shortage recently and it, you know a lot of people were paying more attention to this world but then even asml their machine is made up of thousands of components made by other companies. So then you kind of go down another layer of complexity and you look at other companies like Trump, who make the lasers that go into those machines, or you look at Zeiss semiconductor, uh, the semiconductor wing who make the lenses that go into it. And again, the the further you dive into this world, the more you encounter, hang on, there are all these other companies who are the world's expert in you know, X or Y in the chemicals, for instance, a particular chemical that goes into that semiconductor foundry. And you realize that the companies that we've heard of are just sitting on top of this enormous um, sea of other companies who are kind of doing a lot of the real work, you know? And, and that to me is, is, is amazing and inspiring. Um, and that's before you even get to the fact that there is much more complexity further down that supply chain than you'd ever care to imagine you know when we in the in the press talk about semiconductors for the most part people are just talking about what's happening in those chip foundries in Taiwan where the 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 transistors are getting kind of etched onto the onto the silicon wafer no one talks about where the silicon wafer comes from but that's a whole other world of complexity and excitement and interest in and of itself and when I started off writing this book one of the things I wanted to do like I say was to I wanted to understand where things actually began. So I didn't want to, you know, have it just explained to me that silicon chip, well, it just starts at a foundry. It doesn't start at a foundry. Where does the silicon start? Where does the, where does the silicon come out of the ground? And the people I spoke to within the semiconductor world, so the people who are making those chips, they didn't know. They didn't know where the silicon itself would come out of the ground. They'd never really thought, thought about it because it's so distant to them. All they do is they they order up a silicon wafer, a pure silicon wafer, and it arrives at the, with them. Well, to, in order to create that silicon wafer, you need to go through process after process to take something that you mine out of the ground and turn it into something incredibly pure. It's an even more amazing journey than the one that goes on to make the, the chips themselves. Uh, is making that silicon, and that was a, something that had never I'd never kind of you know read about and in 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 a, in a book before. And I thought, well, this is this is one of the most extraordinary journeys in the world. And a all, lot all, all along that journey, you're 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 encountering companies you've never heard of, you know. And there are some of them mentioned in the book. Um, and I talked to actually Elchem was one of the the companies I talked to who kind of do a lot of mining of of uh, uh, of quartzite, which as for them typically more goes into silicones and stuff. But I, I found that was a world that was, to me, very unfamiliar and peopled by people who, who are really expert in their field, who are not very publicity hungry. So a lot of these companies don't have a big, you know, they don't talk about themselves all that much because they just do what they want to do. And also because... For some of them, you know, they're working in the world of manufacturing and energy-intensive industry, and they're quite carbon-intensive. And they know that it's it's not very popular to to be a carbon emitter, even if you're emitting that carbon to do something which might help the energy transition further down the line. And this comes back to this other issue that we discussed when it comes to to, to COVID. It's very difficult. You know these days within within kind of mainstream press things things are not necessarily covered in a way that is super rational a lot of the time you know it's 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 about denial or catastrophism you know there's there's it's the end of the world or you know why are we panicking? nothing's going wrong at all here and the people most of the people in this material world in these companies, you know then they're not focused on that drama they're just trying to kind of do their job and a lot of a lot of the time that job is taking us to a slightly better place um but they're so i think they feel like every time they engage with the media then they get caught up in that drama and the book i hope doesn't fall into either of those two camps and it hopefully kind of takes takes you into a rational way of looking at the world looking at the world uh, there are enormous enormous challenges in terms of getting the energy transition going um but trying to paint everything in terms of either denial or doom you know it's denial or doom which is the way a lot of it kind of ends up going i don't think people respond to that all that much um so um and i don't think it's a fair reflection of the real world you know so hopefully that book, hopefully the book kind of, you know, answers that a little bit.
0: You just touched upon, you know, the net zero ambitions, energy transition, given all the research you've done right now, what do you think the roadmap looks like, especially in renewables? I find it interesting to see at China, just because they're doing things at a very big scale. And they're also very pragmatic energy security. There's so many topics, you know, involved in this, but how do you mm. feel about the roadmap and where do you look to try to see what's the best or what is you know how do we think the future will look because it's going to be a very difficult task that's for sure
1: that's the point i think it's i think it's going to be it's very very challenging and it's challenging because we are i think first of all because we are moving down the the thermodynamic ladder so we're going from a situation if you look back at previous energy transitions each time we were going from a fuel that was slightly less energy dense to one that was more energy dense or more convenient. So from wood to coal, from coal to oil, from oil to gas, we're moving kind of up this ladder where things are getting more efficient each time and we're getting better turbines and we're able to eke more power uh, and more energy out of those out of those inputs. Whereas, and obviously along the way, the, the we didn't realize it at the very start of this but then we kind of gradually realized it we were also emitting carbon but it's also worth just remembering that at each of those stages what looked it didn't look like it was an environmental catastrophe at the time in fact it looked like the new technology was going to save the world and i think a really important thing to remember about this so coal is obviously not a great fuel (laughs) it's not very popular right now for understandable reasons it's very carbon intensive um and it's very dirty in other ways as well however when we first started using coal in this country in the uk um in the kind of you know 17th 18th centuries it was seen as the solution to an ecological catastrophe which was that we were running out of trees we were using up we were basically deforesting this country in order to to fill the furnaces to make not just steel but partly steel and well iron mostly um, iron but also glass, uh, beer. All of these things um, were consuming an enormous amount of wood to the extent that people were getting panicked about us running out of wood. We were literally cutting down our entire our entire kind of forests. Um, coal came along and coal basically solved that it solved that you know almost overnight so you know the forests could eventually start to kind of rebuild in this country of course it brought with it terrible catastrophe uh in the long run when it comes to to carbon emissions but it solved an economic ecological catastrophe at the time when oil came along you know people were worried about the extinction of sperm whales because people were 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 fishing sperm whales to get the the oil uh, from those sperm wells to use for 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 lighting for lanterns so so oil when it came along averted another ecological catastrophe people were worried that the streets in 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 new york and london were getting so filled with horse manure that uh that they thought the entire cities would be swamped by them well then the car came along and it solved that catastrophe so each step along the way what seemed in hindsight, like a terrible thing actually turned at the time seemed like it was really solving all of our problems and going up this, this, um, this ladder of thermodynamic kind of efficiency. Well, with with net zero, we are going down that ladder. And we're going down that ladder. And also at the same time, having to try to reimagine a whole suite of different industrial um, processes, which underlie the world that we that we live in today and i think that's what is 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 partly challenging about this when you when you look back at history when you look at the industrial revolution and you'll see this in the book you realize that this wasn't just a revolution of working out how to make steel better you know although that was part of it and if you if you look at the um the the story the kind of cliched story of the industrial revolution it's all about steel and how we made made steel with coal and coking coal and about textiles and things like that. But at the same time, so many different things were happening. There were so many different advances. There were advances in chemicals. So we were learning how to make chemicals properly. A lot of that was quite carbon intensive. We learned how to make concrete properly. That was quite carbon intensive too. We learned how to refine metals. That was really carbon intensive at the same time. We were learning and making all of these amazing processes, you know, aluminium, making aluminium, electrolysis, all of this was happening kind of at the same time over the course of about 200 years. And what's enormously challenging about net zero is we're having to compress a lot of that those achievements um, into such a short space of time, relearning how to do all of this stuff without emitting carbon, or at the very least, coming up with a really good way of capturing the carbon while also kind of shifting down from a high uh, energy density set of fuels to a low energy density set of fuels. And I think when you put all of that together, the scale of the challenge is utterly enormous. And what concerns me is that I don't think the politicians, when they signed up to these net zero pledges, were being honest. I don't. To be honest with you, I don't think they understood themselves the scale of that challenge, you know, um, but they weren't honest about it. And so it was it was painted as you know, the costs weren't made very clear. And I I think the difficulty of what we're going through right now is that people are starting to realize that there are costs attached because it is now impacting them with their cars and, and everything else and their heating and so on and so forth. And they're thinking, well, hang on, why are we having to pay more for this stuff? No one really told us about that. And you know, that this is the inherent problem is that it is going to be expensive to get there, but I still think it's both necessary and a good thing. And I think part of the problem here is that there's opportunities, there's massive opportunities And what I've just described about us needing to reimagine the entire industrial revolution in a carbon neutral way, that is one of the biggest industrial opportunities that the world has ever had. It's one of the biggest challenges we've ever had, but one of the biggest opportunities, because you need to think about everything. You need to think about a way of making silicon metal, so metallurgical silicon, first stage in making those silicon chips, Right now, there is no way of doing it without using coking coal in the furnaces, which by the way is an interesting thing to reflect on. When you're using your smartphone, you are using a fossil fuel product. When you're using the chip in that smartphone, it's, it's fossil fuel product. But right now there's no way of doing that without carbon emissions, without using coking coal, but people are working on that and there are exciting things going on. So we are living through one of the most exciting periods because uh, one, an enormous industrial challenge has been set to the world. And people are coming up with smart ways of of meeting that challenge. I feel too little is made of that. And I feel that it would be more palatable, I think, for people to to understand, you know, the the downsides, if they also understood there are big opportunities here. Um, The opportunity isn't just that you know, by the end of this century, we will have a cleaner world, which is more sustainable and which is less reliant on other people, it is that we will also develop a whole new suite of industries, which are doing amazing things. Just to go back to your, to your original question, um, and this is kind of a long winded way of answering it. But um, I think part of the issue is that there is this big industrial opportunity um, right now it's been taken by china um it is it is doing extraordinary stuff right now when it comes to its batteries when it comes to solar panels um but a lot of that i p originally evolved in europe um and europe has just has allowed the industrialization a lot of of a lot of this green tech to happen elsewhere and to some extent for the world it's a great thing because china's doing it at such scale that it's getting prices down and there's enormous advances although you could say it's some, there are some downsides because it's using a lot of coal to do it but the 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 aim is to to create more of this technology to make it cheaper that's all a good thing but what's what i think is a shame is that in europe you know it could have been a good way of offsetting the the the, the downside that people will inevitably see in the coming years, it's gonna be more expensive. Energy is gonna be more expensive for quite a while before it gets cheaper. It will get cheaper in the long run, but it's gonna be more expensive in the short run because we are moving from very cheap, quite prevalent sources of energy down to less energy dense sources of, of energy. And at the same time, trying to create a massive industrial base of reimagined uh sectors by, while doing it. That's gonna be expensive uh in the short to medium term but to offset that we could at least be kind of making more of the fact that this could be a really exciting industrial revolution to live through and it feels right now like europe's not quite you know seizing the the opportunity there and and in fact china and the us uh with the inflation reduction act are doing it so i think it's i think that's a bit of a shame